Can we talk something else? Can we talk about something else? Hello? Out there. As I stumble into the studio at 2 a.m., try to sneak past the bear that I think is roaming about outside in the night these days. <laughs> it's actually a cow. Uh, something was taking huge shits in my backyard and was freaking me out. And I was hearing something when I was writing out here. Uh, like snorting. I thought it was a pig. Then I saw the shit, and someone said it looked like bear shit. And I looked up bear shit, it looked like bear shit. But it also looked like cow shit. <laughs> I went straight to bear. Um, so, all good. On with the show. Driving long distance. You see some shit when you push it past eight hours or so. Especially when the sun has bid farewell after our Spherical spaceship begins to rotate away from its life-providing glow. Yes, I believe that the Earth is a sphere, despite half-baked theories that YouTube graduates have brought back from the ancient lips of those without telescopes. You see all kinds of things out on the road. Tired, slumped, and abandoned farmhouses. Hunks of bloody, hairy meat that shadowy beasts retreat from as your high beams approach. Garbage bags, which, to my imagination at least, Likely hold body parts, all of its scraps of punctuation left over from untold stories. A period here, a comma there. Ends, beginnings, and little pauses. What we fail to study, however, are the people. Hard to see folks stuck between those remnant marks of errant punctuation, who found themselves lost between the lines of our collective story, while hitching up their thumbs for a chance to ride to a new life. A life that maybe could be spurred towards a profitable direction, if given the right incentive by a more mobile soul. Unfortunately, it's the overriding belief that we should speed up when spotting an upturned thumb. We fix our eyes to the road as if that thumb is down, as if the body attached to it is invisible, leaving the destitute to wait on those who have a profit to gain by flashing their taillights red, pumping the air brakes to an eventual shrieking halt while cleaning off a seat, for their next victim. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is the loosely woven tale of a long-haul trucker who, like all truckers, had time to think, which makes his crimes all the more deplorable. April 1st, 1990, when Trooper Mark Miller of the Arizona State Police spots an exclamation point in place beside the highway. The semi-truck he finds is stopped on the roadside, hazards on, and 
looking in disarray, according to his report from the day. As Miller approaches the driver's side door, a song of pain and suffering greets his ears. He pulls a service pistol and swings himself up with a sturdy side-view mirror and onto the driver's step for a look. What he sees is a woman, naked, battered, shackled and gagged with what he'll later discover to be a heavy horse bit. The woman's eyes transform from weary and forlorn to bright and desperate when she spots the officer. She begins to buck and writhe against her restraints, chains that loop around her limbs and lead to a hook above her head, a hook of which her cuffed hands dangle limply, devoid of blood flow. The officer calls out, and a man appears from the sleeper cap. He swings a heavy curtain shut behind him as he exits, but the concealment of his captive is moments late. The muffled screams that emit from beyond the makeshift barrier belie the trucker's claims that everything is all right. Just a bit of fun going on. April Fool's officer? The trucker identifies himself as Robert Ben Rhodes, a tall, clean-shaven former Marine with a full head of jet-black hair who wears a uniform of sorts. His dicky pants and open-collared shirt appear pressed and well-fitted. The dark glasses that cover his eyes lend an imposing air to his imposing figure. The officer trains his gun on the lean and mean-looking long-haul trucker as he climbs down from the cab. The trucker admits to being armed and, without being asked, puts his hands up against the trailer, exposing a gun that's tucked into his waistband. Miller quickly forces cuffs on the thick wrists of the eerily calm and affable captor of the now incredibly loud prisoner behind the curtain. Officer Miller escorts Rhodes past the haphazardly parked white 88 Peterbilt and to the back seat of his squad car. Rhodes continues to claim that the situation, as bad as he knows it to appear, is actually an amicable one between he and the shackled woman, and that she's just crazy. Miller slams the back door of his cruiser, which locks automatically, then rushes to the truck cab to get the other side of the story. The woman, who shares her name to be Lisa, is inconsolable. Miller covers her with a blanket in an attempt at modesty, but she keeps screaming, blurting out a litany of seemingly insane nonsense. To somehow compound just how mystifying this situation is, Miller looks down to see that the woman is wearing a pair of fuzzy lion slippers. She begs to be freed, but Miller knows he needs to keep this scene intact. He calls for backup and assures the woman that she'll soon be safe, as the hair begins to stand on the back of his neck. Something tells him to check on Rhodes, and when he does... He finds that the nimble trucker has managed to get his cuffs in front of him and is preparing to kick out a window to make his escape into the dusky evening. The officer resecures Rhodes with his hands behind his back, this time looping a cuff around the disarmingly calm suspect's belt to make things a little more difficult. Backup arrives, and after photos are taken of the disturbing scene in the sleeper, Lisa is finally released. She gags a little when the painful horse bit is removed, and her arms are assisted by officers to lay by her legs, legs that bear long, red, and upraised welts, the result of a whipping. As she's escorted out of her prison, it's noticed that her back is covered with lashes, some old, some new. They've been laid out in a weaved pattern, the inflictor obviously practiced. Detectives listen intently to Lisa's story and shudder when she describes the reason for some of her injuries. Metal clips clamped to her nipples and genitalia that Rhodes threatened to tear off as she struggled, being one of the many tortures still causing pain in the young woman's battered body. As the interview progresses, Lisa begins to sermonize about her mission to meet the president and expose secret prisons, 
fed by an underground railroad of slaves assembled by truckers who form a shadow network of sadism and depravity. As she rambles about microchips, worried looks begin to exchange between the detectives. Because they know Rhodes in the other room is calm, cool, collected, in control of his faculties, that he's claiming Lisa was a willing participant in a sexual fantasy, and that she's just plain nuts. Because Lisa, who can easily be dismissed as some drug-addicted lot lizard, at best the victim of a trick gone wrong, is giving the sort of testimony that'll outright get laughed out of court. Because they feel that everything Lisa is saying regarding Rhodes is true, and that this is more than likely not his first rodeo, or his last, should he be allowed to hit the road again. Roughly 160,000 miles of highway across the face of America, and probably most of the nearly 264 million registered vehicles in the country find their way onto that network of arteries and veins. The numbers are sky high, easy to get lost in, easy to disappear into if needs be. But every road leads to somewhere, and from somewhere. The road that led Ben Rhodes to that final encounter with Trooper Miller stretched way back, but there were signs all along it just as many hidden in the tree line as standing above it, glowing like neon in the night. They don't mean much alone, but if anybody had paid enough attention, it would have been obvious where they were going to lead. Reports of Rhodes' early life are often foggy at best. Most of what we might infer in the struggles of his childhood become apparent in things we learn later. As a bit of housekeeping, though, he was born on November the 22nd, 1945 in Council Bluffs, Iowa. It was a small town then and hasn't grown much since, but it was an important stop-off in the middle of the country for the shipping industry. Rhodes would someday embed himself in, like a tick. His childhood is unremarkable. He's well-liked at school, described as popular. He plays football and is a member of the Glee Club, of all things, as well as the French Club. His mother raises him alone until he turns 12 when his father returns from overseas military duty and rejoins the family. Just four years after that, Rhodes breaks his outlaw cherry at 16 and gets a juvenile record, being arrested for tampering with a vehicle and then arrested again that same year for fighting. Three years later, he joins up with the Marines and there follows a single bare fact and a veritable truckload of speculation. That same year, 1964, Rhodes' father is arrested on pedophilia charges for the rape of a 12-year-old girl. Rhodes will go on to confess after his incarceration that his father was a violent and sexually predacious man, and that behavior would go on to inform his own disgusting inclinations in the future. Horrible sexual abuse is a common connection between serial killers, but so is being a lying, manipulative psychopath. There are no records to confirm Rhodes' claims about his past, the only testimony being his own, and the only verifiable fact being his father's arrest, an arrest that shamed his father into committing suicide, in fact. The thing you need to understand going forward, and what I've already hinted at, is that the story Rhodes tells of his father's sexual perversion alludes to the possibility that Rhodes himself was a victim early in life. At least one psychologist has suggested that Rhodes took steps to transform his victim's appearance to make them appear as a younger version of himself to reverse the power roles. Ideas like these fit perfectly. We believe them because it's immediately plausible. It makes sense. 
but we may have just fallen victim to Rhodes' one incredible magic trick. The psychosocial voodoo that let him get away with God knows how many murders, how many more brutal, sadistic sexual assaults over the next several decades. Rhodes didn't last long in the military, the better part of a four-year contract before he was kicked to the curb for armed robbery. Saddled with a dishonorable discharge, arguably worse than a felony conviction on your record in America, Rhodes sets out to find himself. He tries college and drops out shortly thereafter. Then he tries to be a cop, but he's mercifully turned down. Eventually he moves back to Council Bluffs, marries, has a child, and attempts to live squarely. The married life doesn't jive with Rhodes, however, and he takes work as a long-haul truck driver. This affords him the opportunity to abandon his wife and child, an affront they'll likely one day realize may have been the nicest thing he'd ever done for them, and take to the roads, living life as a swinger. For those few of you ill-advised in the vernacular, those are folks that don't bat an eye at sharing their wife or themselves or their wife and themselves with their neighbor Don or Jerry the Postman in pursuit of heightened sexual gratification. Just a note here, before the end of this, I'll have mentioned more than a few communities, sexual or otherwise, that Rhodes managed to ingratiate himself into during his career as a lone wolf of woe. While we might find some of these folks and their various uh, appetites on the strange side, it should be noted that that doesn't make them bad people. Welcoming, to a fault, if anything, but never just outright bad because of what they get up to in their spare time. I'm sure if my neighbors knew what I was creating in the corner of my garage all night, they'd likely stop having orgies uh, with me and the town baker. Anywho, Rhodes manages to build up a reputation for himself as something of a pariah in both the swinger communities and amongst other long-haul truckers. He was notorious for spending exorbitant amounts of money at swinger clubs and on prostitutes. Even some of the roughest customers of the worst sorts of establishments knew him as an especially creepy and distasteful guy. Rumors started getting around that he had a custom-built sex dungeon installed in the sleeper cab of his truck. In the fairly small world of long-haul trucking, he'd earned himself the nickname Whips and Chains, which he happily adopted as his handle on the CB radio. To most, though, Rhodes was known as Dusty, a slightly less foreboding name to take in when entering the cab of a truck a cab that glows against the swampy darkness of a stretch of highway just outside town limits, a glow that slowly fades once you slam the door at your hip and cheerily thank your savior, who sparks his side of conversation with the flick of a zippo and a long, crackling draw of a cigarette. Everybody has seen a semi-truck at some point, but most people haven't been inside of one. The sleeper cab is actually that whole big chunk behind the driver's seat, and they get fairly large like a cramped studio apartment, complete with televisions, radios, beds, or, in Rhodes's case, a nightmarish dungeon full of whips, chains, and anything else a deranged mind might employ to hurt, to humiliate. There's nothing illegal about what Rhodes has set up in his sleeper, even the strands of women's hair that flutter about when he cruises with the windows down likely can't be traced to a missing person, because many of those who he used up and discarded like a piss jug were never reported as missing in the first place. Rhodes's life again drifts into speculation from the late 1960s all the way through to 1990, but pieces rise to the surface, mostly innocuous. 
1972, he finally divorces his first wife, though he'll marry again three more times before he's caught. The wives that talk about him remember a manipulative, condescending man. He was dressed as an airline pilot when he met his fourth wife, Deborah. On their second date, he wore cowboy gear and took her dancing. It wasn't long before he charmed her into marriage, all the while disguising himself as a provider, a knight in shining armor. Once he was in, he slowly attempted to bring her into his world, inching her towards more and more risque sexual escapades. Deborah never could have guessed who her husband really was, but there were signs she discovered when looking back. When a quadruple date turned full swing back at a residence, Rhodes brought Deborah to a room because he wanted to show her something. On the bed lay a passed-out partygoer. She'd likely been drugged. Deborah looked on in horror as her husband jovially took to having his way with a helpless young woman. She dared not question the behavior, as by now it was clear that she should never do that. All this time and through the 1980s, women, hitchhikers and prostitutes, turn up dead or just simply vanish. Word circulated within the ever-breaking circles of trust, sex workers form, that girls were getting into the passenger seat of Rhodes's freezer-white Peterbilt and turning into smoke. Rumors hold that accounts of women being chained up, raped, and tortured in Rhodes's modified sleeper cabin made the rounds, but, unfortunately, whispers of warning often stay bogged within the mucky worlds of which they're uttered. In 1985, a young woman hitchhiking on I-95 in the Carolinas got picked up by a man in a clean, meticulously clean, semi-truck. She recounted the near-death experience to GQ magazine, saying it wasn't until they were already on the road that she saw his eyes sort of go dead and observed his posture change to something ugly and arrogant. He started talking about a dead girl that recently been found in a dumpster off the highway and asked if she'd ever heard of the Laughing Death Society. It wasn't long after posing this ominous question that he pulled over to a woody area off the highway and showed her the knife. He then ordered her into his sleeper. Luckily, she avoided freezing and escaped at the passenger side door, darting into the woods and hiding there until she saw his truck reluctantly return to the highway. In the later part of the 1980s, an 18-year-old girl endures a similar situation, though her escape was far less clean. She takes a rare opportunity and flees an abandoned house in Houston, Texas, where Rhodes is taking his time with her. The cops who respond find the girl badly beaten and mostly naked. It wouldn't be until after Rhodes' eventual arrest that authorities would match Rhodes to the description of the man who attacked her. We might think these women are crazy for taking a ride from a crotch-scratching trucker in the dead of night, but we wouldn't think that on the ground, frozen to the bone on a near-empty stretch of I-95 with our thumbs stiff from being stuck out for hours. In one of his most recent prison photos, after a Stroke ruined half his face. Ben Rhodes looked like Popeye's demented, murderous brother. Left eye bugged all the fucking way out of his head. His mouth pinched on one side, slack on the other. He's one of the rare who actually looked like a serial killer, no doubt. But back in 1985, he was handsome, in a fatherly kind of way. A dilf. <laughs> Guards who later transported Rhodes across country to court appearances, remarked on how incredibly endearing their prisoner was. Even in an orange jumpsuit and chained from ankle to wrist cuffs, waitresses were drawn in by Rhodes. 
sharing their life stories, and giggling in response to his charming wit. If you were unlucky enough to be a desperate young lady at a truck stop at which Rhodes sat, blowing on a coffee in the 80s, then the reason you're still here is that he had another girl tied up in the truck. Rhodes doesn't look like the typical disheveled, dead-eyed, lonely type we imagine prey on travelers. He doesn't behave like one on first meeting either. Rhodes came off as one of the good guys, just a blue-collared working man, happy to take on a little company for the long road ahead. You remind me a little of my daughter. Sure, I'll give you a lift. You can even take a rest in the sleeper. Just wash the sheets. Maybe not that creepy, but you get the idea. <laughs> Just wash the sheets. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, <laughs> uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape, where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12 infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. For those who felt safety came in numbers, they were soon proven wrong. Newlyweds Candace Walsh and... Douglas Sikowski likely felt at ease when Rhodes swung open his passenger door on a highway between San Antonio and El Paso in January of 1990. The thermometer was dipping close to freezing, and Candace and Doug had a long way to go, all the way to Georgia, as it were, to serve as missionaries in some capacity. Rhodes didn't have much use for Douglas or any other males, given what we know of his case history. Police suspect the 28-year-old was killed shortly after setting foot in Rhodes's cap, likely executed with a single shot to the head, then covered in foliage by the Sutton County, Texas roadside as Candace screamed terribly in the sleeper. After his arrest, a search of Rhodes's apartment by FBI investigators, led by Agent Robert F. Lee, led to the discovery of various paraphernalia he'd accumulated during his career on the road, like any man's toolkit, it was put together piece by piece over a lifetime, refined as his needs changed and he learned and adapted to his craft. In particular, the investigating agents found what's now widely known as a rape kit. Lee, who led this investigation due to his experience with sexual sadists of Rose's disposition, described the kit as being one of the most refined he'd ever come across. 
He and his fellow agents surmised this kit could only belong to a journeyman psychopath. Most all rapists start with a kit of what they'll need to bind and humiliate their target, but Rhodes has had increased in complexity over the years, like a tree adding rings. Candace Walsh, after hearing Rhodes' killer partner, would likely have observed him retrieving this briefcase a short time later, as she hung helplessly restrained in the sleeper. An inventory of the case by Lee after Rhodes' arrest included alligator clips, dildos, double-sided, pins, leashes, whips, and handcuffs, all of which were meticulously placed and maintained. Police expect it was a week before Rhodes finally killed Candace and dumped her body in Millard County, Utah, roughly 1,000 miles away from where he picked her up. Sometime later that month, in Houston, Texas, a woman would run screaming to the police after weeks of bondage and violation in Rhodes' rolling depravity wagon. About her neck, she wore a collar, of which a chain and padlock dangled. More than one passerby swerved around her as she stumbled partially naked and looking like a horror movie actress in the middle of the road. Finally, she came across a man in his lawn, and police were summoned. Though initial reports suggested Rhodes had simply forgotten to lock the cuffs holding her inside the vehicle, details would later suggest that whips and chains merely thought he'd fully broken the woman. He believed he'd broken her spirit like an animal, and that she no longer maintained the capacity to disobey him. He'd inflicted brutal tortures upon her, and it's with this case that we truly get insight as to how depraved Robert Ben Rhodes was. picked up at a truck stop where she hoped to trade what she could for a ride and after approaching a dark shaded man who gave her a fatherly feel was soon on her way she dozed off at some point and awoke to the man she knew as dusty bringing his rig to a stop on a desolate and dark side road over the coming days this girl would be tortured and degraded in a plethora of ways my face has been screwed up over this for a month so Fair warning. Rhodes, of course, chained the girl up, whipped, beat, and raped her. Usually this is where a podcast or newscast leaves it to your imagination just how bad the quote, among other things, were. But not today. Not on my watch. The girl shared that pins were stuck through her nipples once her captor tired of the alligator clips. Do I need to describe what alligator clips are? Probably not, but I will. They're a micro version of the ones we use to boost a dead battery. They have teeth. She was starved, 
Rhodes would force her to drink his urine when she complained about being thirsty. Usually he'd let her lose control of her bowels or bladder and punish her for doing so. But in his more tender moments, he'd yank her by a leash outside of the truck like a dog to have her relieve herself. By the time Rhodes leads the girl back to his road apartment, where he allows her to shower, then sodomizes and takes photos of the girl, he figures he has her snapped. They even walk to his door hand in hand without incident, something he'd done with many of his captives, it can be presumed. It's confirmed in our final upcoming case, actually, where the black crop-cut hair of Regina Walters likely to this day swings into the thoughts of a retired dock supervisor who will forever have those big, wet, and pleading eyes that were caked with mascara as if a child took to prettying up a doll, burned in his memory. Nightmares, this story will give you. When Rhodes hit the roads, sorry, again with this girl, he felt he had a doll with him, a puppet. What he didn't know was that the girl had come into her own as a woman on the streets and was faking her catatonic demeanor. She'd been at a door since twelve, and by her own admission, had been raped or otherwise assaulted dozens of times before coming across this latest piece of shit in a long line of pieces of shit. She waited for the opportune moment and then got the fuck out of Dodge, or Peterbilt, in this case. Rhodes had stepped out for a pickup at a local brewery, and by the time he'd returned, discovered the escape, and hit the road again. Unbeknownst to him, police were out looking for his truck. Rhodes is eventually pulled over, and the girl is brought to ID her alleged abuser. Faced with the man who'd held her in bondage for weeks, cutting her hair, beating her, piercing her, whipping her, raping her, scraping the humanity out of her soul inch by brutal inch. She found she couldn't do it. She turned her eyes to the ground and refused to name him as the man who'd hurt her. Apparently all the two-way mirrors were booked that afternoon. Without the woman's testimony, police were forced to let Rhodes go on his way, and later that same day, the exact same day that this girl fled, he would find our retelling's final and most well-known victim hitchhiking her way to Mexico with her boyfriend. The girl, Regina Walters, was a 14-year-old from Pasadena who'd fed her mother a story that, sacked up with her older lover, failed to make contact as she knew the relationship would be admonished. Stories from friends and family after the fact revealed that she was headed for Mexico with Ricky Jones, who allegedly hadn't realized at the time that she was 14. Though when posters started showing up regarding Regina and her runaway status, close friends shared that Ricky was worried he'd be booked for having sexual relations with a minor and decided to skip town. Young Regina Walters tailing behind, excited for an adventure, one that began when a white semi finally yielded to the signal of Ricky's thumb. For Rhodes, it was probably the same old story, FBI investigations into his activities suggest he'd accelerated his schedule to at least three women a year by the time he was caught in 1990. These two hapless kids, only just becoming adjusted to the rules of the road, were easy pickings. He killed the boy, Ricky Jones, soon after picking the two up. His skeleton would be found years later, a hole from a small caliber round adorning the skull. Rhodes was very much a man with a type as awful as it is to boil something this horrendous down. And a girl like Regina Walters would have fit the mold perfectly. 
It's from Rhodes' wife, Deborah, that we get probably the most on-point description of how he viewed the people he preyed on. She recounted the story of one of her last trips with Bob and his truck, where they stopped at a busy truck stop off I-10 in Arizona. They saw a girl there, a young woman, really, not quite 20 and looking desperate. She was holding a baby and looking for a ride out of there, an unfortunate but not wholly uncommon thing to run across at a truck stop. Deborah, like anybody, felt bad for the girl. Rhodes found what she was looking at and came up behind her, putting his hands on her shoulders and twisting her toward the girl. He made sure her eyes were locked on what he thought of as easy pickings, then whispered deeply into her ear, You see that, Debbie? That's one of the invisible people. Authorities only ever charged Rose with three murders because those were the only three they had enough evidence for to make a case. The expectation is that Rhodes killed at least 50, if not more. Come on now, definitely more. During his reign of terror over the U.S. highway system. The worst thing was how he got away with it for so long. He preyed upon people that he felt nobody gave a shit about. His invisible people. The sort of folks you don't look in the eye when you see them asking for a ride up the road. The sort of folks only an animal like Rhodes can see, sniffing them out with a predatory sixth sense, the way a shark hunts for beating hearts with electricity. Few women ever came forward who survived catching a ride in Rhodes' meat wagon, though I hope to God there are more of them than I might expect. The ones that did were hesitant to talk about it for one reason repeated over and over in every account shared. Given who they were, they didn't think the police would believe them. The story, they thought, would sound too unbelievable. Ridiculous, even. To some, it's far-fetched to think that men like Rhodes exist as strewn members of a wolf pack on the highway, spread out to ensure that there's enough prey for all and that the carcasses of said prey end up far enough apart and with enough discrepancy of injury that they'll all be treated like those garbage bags. None of us stop to tear open. Pulling back from that conspiratorial train of thought, it's believed by legacy protective authorities that one man couldn't manage to stay active that long, that he'd screw up. Rhodes may have killed hundreds. Impossible? Nah, the math adds up to triple digits on my sweat bruise calculator. Granted, we'll never know. Those pinched lips ain't opening for nothing but prison food and hopefully some late-night medicine, if you know what I mean. He's been asked to move from a cell in the past, so that's hope. Although I know others have asked to be moved from him as well. So, to spin back, not only was it possible to simply cruise the roads and pick your spots at will back in the 80s, guys like Rhodes felt it was a matter of course. He rode the highways with impunity, picking women off the street like fruit to degrade and humiliate, because he knew even the best among us will turn their head to the side when faced with listening to a woman of questionable persuasion or one of obvious mental convolution or somebody who looks disturbed enough to lie about such an upstanding-looking man. The woman this animal preyed upon fit a fairly succinct profile. Female. Vulnerable. Outcast. He chose those that would fit the narrative he wanted you to believe that a guy like him wouldn't be murdering these so-called lot lizards and runaways. They were all druggies with no homes to go to. They disappear all the time. 
the way smoke only extends three feet from your lips before dispersing, or the way vapor from heated frost vanishes about your face when you check on the goods in the icebox. It's just natural. No need to worry. Keep on moving. Nothing to see here. It's with that understanding established that I'll finally recount the details of Rhodes's last known murder and the events that followed until his arrest in April of that same year. The understanding that if women like this could count on being heard when they speak, the young girl wouldn't have second-guessed testifying against a man that raped her for weeks, who often threatened outright that he was going to kill her. She would have dropped Diamond and right then and there, and maybe Regina Walters and Ricky Jones would have made it to Mexico. Photographs taken by Rhodes show the timeline of how he destroyed Regina Walters as a person before finally taking her life. FBI agents found them in his home after his arrest. Agents were able to establish a timeline of torture based on the fact that, in the meticulously kept photos, her pubic hair is shaven and regrown a number of times. The Polaroids reveal more than one shock-inducing detail. A heavy metal ring adorned her genitalia in most of these horror albums. A ring that Rhodes most definitely hooked in without paying attention to proper procedure. He takes Walters north through America, her shackled in the back of his truck and likely watching the sun flickering on whatever partition he used to hide away that ugly part of his life. She would sit shackled, hoping perhaps that Somebody might stumble onto Dusty's additional cargo and rescue her, but most likely waiting for the moment Rhodes kept promising her would come, the moment when he would finally kill her, when the pain games he played grew too severe, when he got carried away, when he got bored. There's a picture of Regina Walters in what authorities believe to be her final moments of life. Rhodes has forced her to wear black high heels and a black dress, her hair is cut short. Her eyes are horrified, disgusted. Really, the expression in them is something beyond what you'd ever see in a person's face if you're a decent human being. It is the look somebody gives the person who's going to kill them. Her hands are up as if she's been asked to confirm her fear through pose. Rhodes maybe overcompensates. Regina's eyes do the trick. She's clearly projecting fatigue with her stare. Fed up, maybe ready for the end, anything but more of what she'd already endured. Life hadn't rolled profitable dice her way to this point. It was likely her belief that the worst had come already. Before hopping into Rhodes' passenger seat, she'd recently suffered the loss of her older sister. Diana had strangled herself from a clothes rack behind a curtain of her closet years previous, after being grounded for disobeying her mother. The suicide note she left signed off with the words, quote, Hate you forever. Those words are in Regina's eyes, screaming at the sentiment within the timeless and slowly fading true crime photo. Regina Walter's body is found rotting in a barn off the side of a highway in Illinois. The man who owns the structure, which through an act of governmental bureaucracy now sits on the opposite side of the highway as his home, notifies the authorities after checking on said barn before burning it to the ground. He does a shuffling sweep of the structure's contents, looking over remnants of his lineage's past. A rusted tricycle here, a broken scythe there. Before he climbs into the loft, where his eyes adjust past the ghosts of children, 
one of them a much more spry version of himself, who once played hide-and-seek there. Once the dust of his memory and reality settles, he takes in a pile of bones, indiscreetly slumped beneath a tuft of short black hair, and a board to which is affixed some wire that lays nestled beneath a small skull. It is September of that same year now, when Regina's bones are discovered. Investigators note the cause of death as strangulation with a length of wire attached to a board, twisted around Regina's neck until she's nearly decapitated. Sixteen slowly administered spins of the board brought the young girl's cruel end. Just days after he kills Regina, on Valentine's Day, 1990, Rhodes marries Deborah, his final wife. While this should maybe be the end of the story for Regina Walters, it is not. Before the connection is made with Rhodes later that year, Regina's missing boyfriend, Ricky Jones, is listed as the only suspect in her murder, though it makes little sense to the people who knew them best. A warrant for his arrest under suspicion of murder is issued in Bond County, Illinois. Ricky is later absconded from suspicion when his body is found in Mississippi, the hole I mentioned in his skull signifying that he had no idea of what was to become of his young lover. Rhodes, a dedicated sadist, does not let Regina Walters rest peacefully. In one of the single sickest acts of depravity imaginable, he uses phone numbers written in Regina's small travel diary to call and harass her grieving parents. Rhodes made the anonymous calls to Regina's father at home and work over a two-day period. The police would eventually trace the calls to locations in Oklahoma City and Ennis, Texas. Rhodes told the dead girl's father that he'd, quote, made some changes. I cut her hair. Rhodes also told the man he'd left his daughter in a hayloft, a detail that would eventually link Regina's disappearance to the bones in the barn. Regina's mother and grandmother also received menacing phone calls from Rhodes. He took a wild chance in Regina's mother's case, inviting her to a local stop-and-go for further information. That call was traced to have been placed from a nearby phone booth. Rhodes may be observed from the cab of his fear-drenched big rig, Regina's desperate mother wringing her hands at the predetermined meetup before crawling off to his next pickup or drop-off. The truck stop killer defaced Regina Walter's diary possibly while she was still alive, mocking her boyfriend's death by drawing a gun and childishly scripted blood drops within it, the phrase, Ricky is a dead man, titling the crude depiction. It wouldn't be until 1992 that Rhodes replaced Ricky Jones as the prime suspect in Regina Walter's death. In an attempt to understand Robert Ben Rhodes's fucked-up worldview, it's necessary to take a peek at his favorite book, the innocuously titled Games We Play, written by psychiatrist Eric Byrne. It was a massive bestseller when it came out in 1964. It's a book about transactional analysis, which, to save us time and a whole lot of jargon, is basically a way to define any interpersonal interaction as a sort of game, with winners, losers, and stakes. The book itself isn't evil, but fuck if it isn't the best serial killer manual I've ever laid eyes on besides American Psycho. Without getting too in-depth, the book breaks down social interactions into games played by whites and blacks, like game pieces on a board, not like the races you might be thinking of. From there, that lays the winning theory in the social interaction, basically giving you the steps to be ahead every time. This might not sound like it has much of anything to do with anything, so let me drop some excerpts from this on you. Quote, People who are suffering from mild sadistic or 
masochistic distortion tend to take a primitive kind of mental health position. They feel that they are strongly sexed and that prolonged abstinence will lead to serious consequences. Neither of these conclusions is necessarily true, but they form the basis for a game of wooden leg with the plea, What do you expect from someone as strongly sexed as I am? Boiling it all down in a paragraph, we have this asshole's entire self-justification for what he does. Spelled out for him in a book he probably bought on a rack at a truck stop on one of his routes. You can almost see him paging through this thing, getting to a part like this, and then scanning the room. Almost like magic as gaze fastens on some squirrely-eyed girl. Her innocence obviously depleted as she clings to an opaque soul which hovers over a never-to-be-finished hot chocolate. Maybe she sees him looking and drops her eyes to her feet, fast in a way that makes him feel a little stronger than he normally does. Because he made her do that. And he thinks, hey, that's a way to pass the time, right? She's dead already. What's the harm? Wooden leg is a game that basically teaches one to explain away any behavior with permutations of the adage, what do you expect of a man with a wooden leg? As in, why is this woman telling me you've been assaulting her? Telling me you've microchipped her body and that if she flees, she'll be dead meat running. And he says, What else do you expect of a woman like that who I had the decency to pick up while she was desperate and already ruined by the previous, who barely been able to lift the flimsy shadow of her thumb out there by the side of the road? The crazy thing about this story is that it's an absolute miracle Robert Ben Rhodes was ever caught at all. He left little evidence that tied him to his crimes. To this day, he's only ever been charged with three, and those just barely. Just as with his work life and the sick habits that filled his non-working hours, Rhodes was meticulous, careful. Maybe he was getting cocky at the end there, starting to believe his own special brand of bullshit every time he took another girl. They'll never get me. Not old Ben Rhodes. But, like any 16-wheeler, burning rubber corner to corner as it gets pushed to the upper limits of the red zone, wheels shuddering under the sheer fury of the force driving it forward. The universe had finally had enough of Ben Rhodes' shit. He'd gone from the FBI's suspected rate of killing three women in a year to nearly killing four in just as many months. But he did get sloppy. That final stop on the side of the road came at him like a pothole flying out of the dark at 100 miles per hour, blowing at his tires and sending him careening up the breakdown lane to scrape himself to a spark-showered halt on the side of the road. Now him and what he did are just more trash out there, tossed beside the highway. He's 72, in prison, and he'll rot there until he's nothing more than an occasional recollection. A sideshow freak we half remember during a drunken conversation. The haze of time falls between him and us like a veil, like a plastic shopping bag slipped over somebody's head, puffing in and out until the condensation stops, dropped on the side of the highway and forgotten, like any of those other visible people. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Darktopic.